Welcome to 050. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Today's guest on 050 believes there's no such thing as waste and it is merely materials in the wrong place. Victor DeWolf is CEO and founder of artificial intelligence and robotics recycling company RecycleEye. And he's on a mission to codify waste identification and use machines to pick pure materials from a mixed waste stream. RecycleEye is also sharing its vast library of waste images via the world's largest open source digital waste library called WasteNet. WasteNet currently has 3 million images available to anyone with machines wanting to learn about waste and identify different waste products. Victor, welcome to 050. Fantastic to have you on here. And I'm looking forward to, along with all of our listeners, to finding all about RecycleEye. How are you? Thank you, Bruce. Thanks a lot for having me. And yeah, a pleasure to, to be speaking to you. Brilliant. So we do a little warm up on the podcast to find out, you know, what makes you tick. Um, and so the listeners can uh, feel a bit more emotionally connected to you over their podcast. So what gets you out of bed in the morning? Why, what are you energized about? Many things. Uh, I think what excites me the most is the technology, though, uh, being hands on uh, with the tech teams and, and seeing the robot essentially replicate humans, be it identify items and, and then pick them with, with its arm. As well as uh, I love, as some people hate it, but I, I love it, uh, visiting waste sites. They don't smell nice, but you have all those big industrial machines moving in every single direction at high speeds uh, and everything being sorted. Um, it's a, quite a sight. Excellent. I'm loving it. I can just imagine you leaping out of bed in the morning with a, getting your hard hat and boots on to go around a waste facility. And um, what is your favorite eco product or gadget that you could never be without? I don't. I wouldn't say I have any gadgets or eco. I guess the the main eco product I have is my reusable uh, water bottle. <laughs> Excellent. Perfect. I don't have any other gadgets? That's perfect. Well, that's it. It's a good one to. It's a good one to have. So, getting into the sort of um, the detail of recycling, what what's the environmental problem you're trying to solve here? Why do we need recycling in our world? It's uh, the main challenge is today's waste sorting is still very inefficient and expensive. It's an industry that relies firstly 60% of operational expenditure of a waste plant still goes to manual sorting for quality control purposes. Uh, not only is it expensive, but it can be a huge strain on those plant managers that want to need to recruit labor. Some staff don't show up. The turnover is very high. Uh, the machines that do exist have very high downtime rates and require a lot of maintenance. And then the final element, there's very little visibility. So waste, uh, unlike many other items, is not a commodity. If Bruce, I were to sell you a, a barrel of oil, you know what you're buying. If I sell you a ton of plastic, you don't know what you're, you're buying. Is it 70% pure, 80% pure? People don't know. And, and so commoditizing that waste through those item level passport logs is, is something our product does as well. And so just for the listeners, if you talk us through, because there, there was a lot said in a few sentences there, if you, if you have a, a typical materials recovery facility where you're sorting the materials into different streams, it's sort of a generic idea of how one of those works and where the recycled solution fits into that sort of entire process. Sure. So, so to the listeners listening, typically yeah, you generate about a, a kilo and a half of waste every single day. That, that will be picked up uh, potentially by one of the first mile trucks and then uh, end up in a, in a waste facility, uh, which typically have the same format. In the UK, they average at around sort of 80 
thousand tons per year. Uh, it starts with a bag shredder that shreds open all of the bags. You'll typically have four to five people at the beginning removing manually all the big pieces of material that don't belong there. So tires, entire bins, large films, uh, batteries or, or other electronics, followed by uh, systems uh, that are called, for example, trommels. These are big rotating cylinders it, with, which have holes of different grades. And so smaller 3D items uh, will fall in the beginning and, and larger cardboards uh, will sort of end up in one spot. Um, and then you'll have loads of other machines like an eddy current, that's something that removes your aluminium. You'll have magnets that remove your cans. Uh, then you have what's called optical sorters. These are machines that have sensors to detect plastic types that are then sorted automatically. And then at the back end of that, you will have an army of people doing quality control. Because whilst the machines will bring you to sort of probably 90% purity, in order to sell your material, you want to reach a 98% purity uh, at minimum. And that's where you have people just picking up the material. Uh, where Recycli comes in is in, in the first step, it's automating the manual quality control and providing reliability of those picks. And then the second step is we provide that data so that the facility can use it in different ways. But one way they use it is simply automating typical manual quality assessments that they would do. So, so by law, everybody, every facility needs to sample about 60 kilograms out of every 120 tons of their material. Now, this is something that's done automatically. Uh, and we're also starting to work with facility constructors to also use that data to design more efficient facilities uh, that can respond dynamically to changing waste streams as detected by the vision system. So that's actually very pretty cool. So at the moment, you've got to sort of literally take a sample of the waste out of the facility, put it into a wheelie bin, take it somewhere else, and then put it on a table and someone sorts through it manually to work out what's there. But you could just do that with a camera in line with the rest of the plant. Is that the case? That's exactly it. Wow, that's very good. And what level of accuracy are you getting? So th that depends. Uh, but I, I can talk with you the, the two main variables that impact that accuracy. The first one is the number of categories you sort into. It, it's You get much better accuracies if you were to do, for example, all fibers versus plastics than if you were to do within the plastic, detect your PET, your HDP, your HDP. Then you can go a step further. You can detect your color types and a step further. And, and the ultimate is, is brand level where you have a thousand brands. So, so but overall, the, the more classes you have, naturally, the, the accuracy does decrease versus the fewer classes you, you have. The second big challenge is the material overlap. So at the back end of a facility, it's quite easy. Everything is well spread. But we still have big challenges and technical problems we need to solve before we can achieve very high accuracies at the front end, uh, where a lot of material is not visible and, and it's sort of mixed up and you might have many large films. And so that, that's a much harder problem for now. And so that's that's really interesting. You mentioned the brand identification there. So you you actually you, you could tell me whether it's um, Heinz tomato ketchup or Tesco's own brand tomato ketchup. Could you? Yes. So so we've done to date we've done tests with brands. Uh, we've done some testing on on Heineken with Heineken, Coca Cola, and uh, Pepsi, uh, where, where we've had reasonable accuracies to detect some of the the brands, although we have not decided to we've decided not to roll it out into a production environment yet the main challenge is it's quite easy to get brand level recognition on a few brands where you can train them and the system can sort of become reasonable at detecting them but that's that's only three brands in the world you have thousands of brands uh, and before we get to sort of the ubiquitous detection of all brands it is going to take a few more years of, of development 
do you see will recycle have a role then in the um reverse vending not the reverse vending the deposit return scheme sort of market because as i understand it and i think it's happening in scotland that even though we all get our deposits back for our cans once we've and, and plastic bottles once we've returned them all of that material then goes into a central sorting facility where they get counted again i think and that sounds like it's sort of ideal for your an ideal environment for your technology and also be able to give that sort of brand data would the brands would love that yeah we have been exchanging with a few partners on such applications one that is actually a bit different it's also to allow facilities to recover the deposits of items that are not in the deposit scheme so even when there is a deposit scheme there's still a very small fraction of those items that will end up in general waste for which people don't claim a deposit but some of the waste facilities themselves and then receive that general waste, have an incentive to pick out the valuables from that dirty stream and then have a mechanism to ideally automatically claim the, that deposit uh, sort of leftover, which adds an incentive to essentially be, yeah, extract as much uh, valuable material, even from very dirty streams. That is very interesting because actually uh, the commodity price of a can's less than a penny probably you'll probably know whereas if it's got a 20p deposit on suddenly it's a game changer and one of the questions i have with these sort of um robotic picking and also the sort of ai side of things is that you you're always fitting them sort of in a factory environment where it's above a conveyor belt with materials uh coming underneath and as talked to a, a friend who runs waste facilities and he said if, if you're a human and if you had a, a lot of materials to sort out you'd sort of tip them onto a table and spread them out in front of you and then sort of pick through them and figure out what's going on if you had sort of the utopian vision of sort of getting the best possible environment for ai driven robotics is the conveyor belt actually any good or would you have a completely different sort of um environment for them the conveyor belts are great uh, so we would keep those. But we do change sometimes that you can have more optimum than what is existing in a facility. So one example, typical conveyor belts in plants won't exceed sort of the 0.5 meters per second. They, they might even be at, at 0.3 meters per second. Because as a human, if stuff moves faster, well, it's just much harder to, to actually grab. With, with robotics, because they have very low latencies, we can actually run faster, so up to one meter per second which itself you know, allows everything to be very well spread and so the vision system can detect things very well and then the robot can pick them very well as well because there's nothing around it. So in our view, that, that's the best environment. Are you looking with the, if we go back to the description of the recycling facility and you've got the people on the back end who are doing the quality control, is it one recycle robot for one person or can you, do you need two robots per person or is it, what's the ratio? It's typically we see one robot sort of replaces one person and a half, depending on who you speak to. Uh, some plants say that every picker does sort of 30 picks per minute. Uh, others argue sort of 50 picks per minute. And it, it probably does depend on, on the waste stream as well. For example, a narrow PT line is quite easy to get a lot of picks per minute versus a much wider paper line, as well as you know, are the contaminants heavier contaminants or, or lighter or their films. Sometimes a manual picker can grab a few in their hands before they need to bring it. Uh, on top of the bin. So yeah, it's typically a, a person and a half. Uh, now we're also looking at scenarios where we're not necessarily replacing people, but also just increasing the granularity of sorting. So today the it's inefficient, it wouldn't be cost effective to have people sort out, for example, food and non-food grade uh, HDPE. So your milk bottles versus your shampoo bottles, even though there's a massive price differential between the two. 
But with robotic, we're able to detect uh, those differences and, and therefore start implementing systems to sort them out. And is there an argument potentially for um, sort of getting a bit into the weeds here, but um, if you can start to find a differential on the price of the commodities, is there an opportunity to actually take the material coming out of a MRF and put it into an entirely different facility? So you might buy the or ship the plastic stream and you get a, you get a, a, the initial sort of recovery facility to do a broad separation and have all plastics mixed and then you take them into a recycle eye factory where it's actually aiming to increase the quality and the consistency of those grades of material that's one option we haven't we've been working with facilities that do have those facilities so typically called plastics recovery facilities uh, we're actually advocating for almost the reverse of that so having a recycle eye facility before ending up in, in another facility and that's actually a project we've got financing from the UK government. It's the idea of building a mini MRF, whereby you sort as much as possible at source, extract all the high value materials there. And then it also saves you to having to go to a MRF and you can go directly to the reprocessor. And so you save a lot more in, in transportation costs because you have one less trip to make. You save in, in space as well, because those MRFs are a lot smaller and can be put a lot closer to the source of waste generation. So we were, for example, some of the prime partners we've been working with were our airports, uh, train stations, and we're going to be installing our first such model in Paris in the uh, end of November, where we have all sort of bags uh, being taken by, by a local collector in sort of their, their area, brought back to that central unit that's very small. In that case, two of our robots in a row that sort into four classes, um, PT bottles, aluminum cans, uh, coffee cups made out of sort of plastics and, and other cups, and, and then coffee cups made out of your, your paper coffee. And, and then these materials are sold uh, at their you know, high resale value. There is, of course, some residual left, and, and that is either sent to, to landfill if it is very dirty, or if there is still some value sent to, to a material recovery facility. And does that facility then come in a sort of pre-built container and you can sort of drop them straight into a... That's exactly right. So it, it, it would fit in a container, but it doesn't come in a container. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah, it's a similar size. Yeah, to deploy. Uh, that is amazing in terms of being able to get the sort of the sorting done locally. And so the, the solution you're solving seems to be getting a more consistent material stream, um, eliminating or deploying workforces in a, in a more productive way. Is it actually going to help the environment? Are we going to get an increase in the recycling rate or is it just a case of doing what we're currently doing more efficiently? If we keep doing what we're doing more efficiently, it will have a good impact on the environment. Uh, the whole economics of waste management are driven by cost. Today, everything that is not recycled it means that those materials have not reached the threshold where technology makes it essentially the cost of sorting is below their cost of their resale value. If we keep lowering the cost of sorting, we will start essentially hitting the threshold of almost every single material where the cost of sorting will start to be below the cost of the resale value and, and unlock entire new tranches of material that today are not sorted. Our view is essentially that the cheaper we can make recycling, the more recycling will happen. So at the moment, the UK recycling rate is about 50% just under. At what point do we start to get LC, you know, a significant 10%, 20%, 30% increase in that recycling rate? And what do we need to do? What does your future crystal ball say around about how we're going to get the recycling rates up and what we need to do as a society to do that? 
there are obviously many elements I'm more familiar with is, is the material recovery facilities themselves, uh, which have a long way to go. In 10 years, I, I would hope that we're in a place where all strategic decision making is informed by data. So today, where we build facilities and what quantities does seem to be a bit of a finger in, in the air approach and often driven by individual councils without necessarily having an ecosystem view of all the waste in an area and what neighboring areas are also generating, as well as standardization of processing, but also of, of collection across areas will, will help sort of generate economies of scale in that. And, and also a model where essentially all operational actions are autonomously driven by machines. So from the waste sorting side, it's building facilities that are automated, that run 24 seven, which today is, in many cases is not the case. But if we simply ran facilities that today run two shifts, five days a week and run those 24 uh, seven, that more than doubles our, our capacity of waste sorting already, uh, which is quite something. Uh, and so, yeah, th these are very much changes I would like to see. Autonomous trucks would also make a big difference because collection is still one of the most expensive parts of that waste chain. But it remains to be solved also if we do have autonomous trucks, how, how do we then load the material into the truck without having a, a driver or, or whether we then also have autonomous robots to pick it up and, and put it in, into the back of a truck. Yeah, and I think that's a little bit, I mean, we've got lots of experience in the collection and it's a bit like you, you'll, ideally you'd have a totally autonomous recovery and sorting facility and we'd have an entirely autonomous collection facility, but actually doing it in pieces is key because if you could have a vehicle that went down the street just slowly then you can change the shape of waste collections anyway if it's there all the time um, and you're moving away from this having to have shift patterns and very highly skilled people to do certain jobs when they're not necessarily highly skilled jobs really so it really interesting and so victor how did you get into the always an interesting question how people end up getting into the waste market and recycling market how did, how did you get into this whole area I'd say I stumbled into it. Uh, so I finished a civil engineering degree and, and I, frankly, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I decided to study environmental engineering at Imperial, uh, mainly because it was very broad. Uh, you had some chemistry, you had some biology, some physics, some uh, programming, uh, and I quite like that. So, so picked it. Uh, when it came to, uh, and at the end of such a degree, everybody needs to do a, a master thesis. Uh, but I read all the topics, and a lot of them were very niche. Like, for example, how does the earth leaf ratio get impacted by X gas? So very, very technical, the type of paper that you're going to write, and it's going to end up on a dusty shelf with maybe one or two other academics reading it. But at the same time, I had a lot of my friends were studying computer vision at the same university and doing uh, really cool stuff like driveless cars, facial recognition. And I figured, gosh, that, that's quite... That's a lot more fun. And so I proposed uh, a dissertation to apply computer vision to, to waste. Uh, and so I went on and, and spent four months developing sort of a code that, that essentially built, a, I guess, prototype V1 of, of the recycling algorithm. Uh, back then, I, I did then have a brief stint. Uh, I, I did go work in, in finance for, for Goldman Sachs. But during my time there, I had a lot of people in the waste industry approach me and sort of went for dinners and, and some lunches to talk about my research. But after enough of those, I was convinced there was clearly something to be made. Um, it also came at the same time where Imperial offered me to come back uh, as a PhD to continue that research I had started. And very quickly, it snowballed into essentially having commercial interest and, and therefore needing more people to deliver. Um, and I thought that the world moves so fast that if I just stick to a PhD, yeah, I might have something in four years time, but you know, people will go a lot faster than I am. Uh, and so the better route was to start a company where we could essentially get a lot more resources uh, and accelerate the development. And, and that's 
yeah, that's how we got here today. Amazing. And how long has Recycle I been going for, for the listeners? It's going to be our two year anniversary in 10 days. Uh, wow. I mean, it's done so much already and you've raised a lot of money and um, sort of accelerating really quickly. And, and you actually, you've got products on the market now, haven't you? Correct. Uh, so, so we have, yeah. we've been very fortunate to, to be able to work with some of the big groups like, like Biffa, FCC, Veolia, and have a mix of some of our pilot projects that were deployed with them and, and now some just commercial off-the-shelf units of the vision system and, and the robotic system. And what's the dream sort of, um, I was going to say in 10 years time, but for the pace you're going for, probably five, five years time, I mean, what's the, what does success look like for Recycleye in terms of the ultimate dream of it? It's ideally creating a, a waste industry of what we described earlier in, in 10 years and being the, at the forefront of, uh, of essentially uh, boosting it with as much technology as possible to essentially have that fully automated future. Uh, our our short-term dream is, is, of course, to to automate as much of facilities using our, our existing systems, uh, robots. But, but long-term is, is really to optimize absolutely everything to one where, where humans can just yeah sit back and, and relax and, and the waste industry takes care of itself and, and ultimately achieving a full circular economy with recycling. I think in the recycling space, there's still a lot of downcycling. You don't have like the bottle-to-bottle is, is not that common. It might be bottle to a car seat or bottle to fabrics, which then don't necessarily get recycled. Uh, so potentially also an expansion of of beyond municipal solid waste streams, which is what we're focusing on today. And what's the hurdle to getting a sort of a, a much higher recycling rates performed autonomously with machines? I mean, what's the, what's the biggest hurdle to getting to that dream for you? Today, it's technology development. So it does take time to, to develop high technology uh, and deploy. Another hurdle is the state of the of the industry in Europe, which might slow things down, is that it, there's still a lot of government involvement, which on one hand is good because you have subsidies, but the, on the other hand doesn't necessarily make it a, as much of a market economy as some of the other markets people are familiar with, because you are dependent on either on, on grants but, or, or bidding through, through online portals for, for government applications, in which case you're, sometimes there are some quite strong constraints of what you can or cannot do. So I think hopefully a democratization of that will, will definitely be useful in the next couple of years. But regulation seems to be moving in the right direction uh, with EPR, which is a great thing. Yeah, extended producer responsibility and presumably also consistent collections is going to help to an extent because you know wherever you're deploying your technology that in theory the council should have the same materials collected or a similar set of materials. Yeah, I, I think the big debate in, in the UK w- will be whether we, we have curbside collection or sorting. So I think in... Places like Belgium and and France and well France not so much but Germany you have for the yellow bag or the PMD bag uh, where most of the population does sort into four categories. In the UK we still typically only sort into one sort of dry mixed recyclables category. It remains to be seen which is the correct approach in terms of achieving the the highest recycling rates as well as the highest purity for recycled material. What would you want listeners to do differently to help you succeed on that on that route? Should we all be uh, going out and talking to our local MPs about buying waste robots? If you can do that, definitely. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, being realistic, I think it's understanding that waste management system is is an ecosystem and not just products. So, so my fear is today, for example, a lot of customers focus on uh, biodegradable plastics right? because, in, in theory, they they sound nice. Uh, but when you look at the ecosystem, today the ecosystem does not know how to recycle biodegradable plastic. So they're great as an alternative if you don't have any sorting capacity uh, and you know it's going to end up in the environment. 
but in the UK, that's not the case. Most of the stuff will end up in a sorting facility or an incineration plant. And it's essentially, if you end up with bioplastics there, well, before you had maybe a nice clean PET, and now you have a PET that's biocompostable, you can't do anything with it and, and you'll class it as, as a contaminant. And so actually you're much better off to buy a just normal PET bottle that will get recycled rather than, than a biodegradable one. I think that's right. And I think what people often forget is that because everyone sort of either lives in their house buying things and consuming things or they work for a company. And when you see things from the product side, the product side isn't that quite that complicated. But actually from the waste side, we got everybody else's products and we get everybody else's packaging and it's all mixed together. You know, people go, well, Tesco's a typical supermarket's complicated because it has 120,000 product lines. That's tiny compared to what a 80,000 tons a year recycling facility we'll see in a year because it'll get 80,000 product lines from Tesco's, 3 million product lines from Amazon, 40,000 product lines from Aldi, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all different, similar types of material, but different types of material. And then we have marketing, packaging designers, marketing people inventing new and novel types of packaging all the time. And it actually becomes increasingly complicated pretty quickly. Yeah, what we, and every year Recycling works with uh, students from Imperial, uh, both from their computer vision team and environmental engineering. Uh, last year, we had one that specialized specifically in the idea of standardizing materials and regulation around that. And, and we saw from her research that if we do implement very strong laws, such as, for example, banning all colors or additives uh, from plastics, that would have a massive sort of overnight impact in, in facilitating recyclables. Uh, today, a lot of say, green PET bottles won't get recycled because you can only make green PET bottle or, or dark bottles, but you can't make a nice clear bottle from it anymore. And that, that's just one step. Others are, for example, banning any material that has composite material. So for today, you have a piece of um, pasta that has sort of cardboard. And within that cardboard, there's a piece of film. And just having those three very distinct types within the same package is also yeah impossible to recycle so just having those standard classes will be will would make everybody's life easier that's for sure and is that why you've got i think it was like 2.7 million it's probably got to 3 million now images on wastenet is that why you've got so many images on wastenet because it's every type and every color of packaging and product and yeah. by brand we don't have them we have a small subsection of that by brand and most of it is we have a very complex uh, what we call our waste taxonomy that is indeed so every product by sort of color types material types by packaging format you know pt tray cup fork even and so that yeah that is why it's so big but also just because the technology itself requires so many images and the more you feed it the better it becomes would it be an image of a, of a Heinz baked bean can or would you have, say, 100 images of that can from different angles, partially squashed, dented, lid open, lid closed? Is, is that what's in there? That's exactly what's in there. The beauty of AI is we wouldn't need every single product to be in there unless you want brand level recognition. But if you want, say, a bean scan, if you just showed a few bean scans, it will learn what the sort visual features of a bean scan is. And if you show it a new one that it hasn't been seen before, unless it's a completely radical packaging that looks completely different, then it wouldn't. Uh, but ultimately it's very much, it, it's, it, it's like a, a baby. You, you, a baby, you showed a few you know items of something and eventually it'll recognize it. And the same with the vision system. And does the recycle I populate the waste net 
database on an ongoing basis. So if it sees something new, uh, and, and then do you have a human part of that which is sort of going, oh, that's been misclassified? Correct. Be so we have the one of our biggest strengths is first actually having an automated data labeling pipeline to be able to capture loads of new data into new geographies. So today we're expanding into France. We're, we're just going to be expanding into Italy as well. The more items we essentially, yeah, the more automated we can become, it, it only takes us a week now per new geography to scan you know, millions of new images. That said, once we're in the geography, we have uh, essentially we, we detect anything that the system is not good at. So you have the system does have a confidence of yes, I know 100% this is a PET model, or it'll tell us ah this looks like it, but I'm really not that sure. If that's the case, well, we then have a pipeline where a human will review it and essentially flag oh it is or it's not, and then retrain the system based on that new data. And so anything new that pops up, the system will always be uh, not so sure what that is. And so that, that will be added to the database. Amazing. So that's just sort of growing exponentially all the time, the more you yep. put it into a territory. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, uh, that's quite incredible, really. Turning to a few sort of the more more sort of personal areas, what's coming up in the next sort of uh, few months, year that you're most excited about, Victor? Yeah, it's going to be our expansion into Europe. Uh, so deploying more of our robots, you know, having proven now that they work with a few clients, it's going to be much larger deployments uh, at scale of tens and twenty units uh, in particular facilities, um, as well as expanding our product line. Uh, so we're moving uh, and, and not just do, doing robotics, but also some really interesting partnerships uh, with some partners that are essentially embedding our vision system into some of their products, uh, which will hopefully bring yeah very interesting new solutions to our clients. We have a thing called the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame, and you could put a person or an item in the Hall of Fame, which will be there for eternity. What would you choose to put in, the, in our Hall of Fame? As an item, I would put PET, a PET bottle, because I think it's often overlooked. People look at the plastic and say, oh, it's terrible. But I, I do think PET recycling is a success story. A lot of it does get recycled if, if disposed properly. And of course, you need the collection system and the recycling facility and preferably avoid it being colored with, with additives or, or biodegradable materials. But but yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I would put that one there because I think it deserves more recognition than it necessarily has because it's a piece of plastic in the media. And it has been a massive success story because overall plastics recycling is low, but PET recycling rates are actually pretty high. So it is a success story. Uh, Vic, it's been absolutely fantastic having you as a guest on 050. If people want to find out more about Recycli, how do they find you? How do they get in touch? They can head on to our website, uh, recycli.com. Uh, they can also go onto our LinkedIn. Very interesting. We often spot, share some interesting pictures there. Just two weeks ago, we had a 500 euro build that was detected by our vision system as part of that anomaly detection system. Over last year, we also had a bunch of cats uh, walking below the conveyor belt when the facility was shut. So definitely some entertainment on there as well. Brilliant. Excellent. I won't, I won't ask you what you spent the 500 euros on. Well, it was only the vision system that saw it. We weren't there to pick it up. So uh, uh, it's gone. It, it's, it's gone. Yeah. Ah, what a shame. That's fantastic. It's been fantastic having you on Zero Five O, Victor DeWolf of company Recycle. I thank you so much for being a guest. So fascinating and a real sort of vision into the future of uh, recycling and sorting. Thank you so much. Pleasure to speak to you, Bruce. I'm Bruce Bradley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet incredible people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.
050